Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Cindy Isabek from The Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at The Washington Post. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm... This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, June 17th. Today, the NFL's about-face, police reform on Capitol Hill, and New York's most famous building goes green. Two weeks ago, a group of players in the NFL released a video on social media. It's been 10 days since George Floyd was brutally murdered. How many times do we need to ask you to listen to your players? What will it take for one of us to be murdered by police brutality? What if I was George Floyd? If I was George Floyd? What if I was George Floyd? 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 I am George Floyd. I am Breonna Taylor. I am Ahmaud Arbery. It was incredibly powerful. I've never seen a movement like this in sports. Jerry Brewer is a sports columnist for The Post. You had some of the great young stars of the NFL, including Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback from Kansas City, Calling a spade a spade. This is what we, the players, would like to hear you state. We, the National Football League, condemn racism and the systematic oppression of black people. We, the National Football League, admit wrong and silencing our players from peacefully protesting. We, the National Football League, believe black lives matter. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. It's hard to get athletes on the same page across sports. And then when you talk about the NFL in particular, for them to come together and to realize that they have power collectively is something that we've never quite seen to this level in the sport of football. So what really surprised people here was the fact that you had players basically speaking out on their own without any kind of official permission from the NFL. For the NFL itself and for Roger Goodell, how has their response to these players and also to Black Lives Matter protests in general, how has that response gone down? It's stunning because the NFL has had such a tight leash on its players. I think they they realize that the climate has changed and it's not okay anymore for you to just think about purely your business interests. I mean, that this is, for so many people, a, a human decency issue, an equality issue. And I think it finally resonated with them that they need to at least think about or at least give lip service to being on the right side of history here, that there is a movement going on. So what exactly has Roger Goodell said about the protests? It has been a difficult time for our country, in particular, black people in our country. Well, Roger Goodell himself has come out and 
apologize to the players for getting it wrong three years, four years ago when the protests started. We, the National Football League, condemn racism and the systematic oppression of black people. We, the National Football League, admit we were wrong for not listening to NFL players earlier and encourage all to speak out and peacefully protest. We, the National Football League, believe black lives matter. He has said that the NFL needs to do better. And it is a stunning turnaround from where we were three years ago and this issue really intensified and the NFL suffered some loss of income, you know, tens of millions of dollars potentially because so much of the public was turned off by the protest. I personally protest with you and want to be part of the much needed change in this country. So for people who have been living under a rock or on another non-sports planet, what is the fraught history that the NFL has with this issue? In 2016, Colin Kaepernick, who was once one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, decided that he wasn't going to stand during the national anthem. At this point, I think it will continue to be taking the knee. He started to explain his stance against police brutality. We have cops that are murdering people. We have cops in the SFPD that are blatantly racist. And he continued for the rest of the 2016 season. As far as how long this goes, I'm not sure. To kneel. Now, this set off a heated debate online and among his fellow players. Kaepernick and that started this entire journey that we've been on. Seen players were talking more about what it means to be an American than their winning game. Colin Kaepernick since the 2016 season, has not played another snap of football. He became a free agent. He opted out of his contract because the San Francisco 49ers said they were going to cut him. He thought that he would be signed. He wanted to start free agency immediately. He was not signed. I've been denied for three years. We all know why I came out here, showed it today in front of everybody. As we went into the 2017 season, Partly because of this, partly because of the issue of uh, police brutality, lethality continued, uh, more players decided to kneel. Hundreds kneeling, some raising fists like Giants receiver Odell. And that's when President Trump. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag? Basically said they all needed to be fired. To say, get that son of a off the field right now, out, he's fired. After that season, the NFL decided it needed a uniform anthem policy, which it hadn't had before, that was buttoned up in a, in a very specific way. In that policy, they essentially gave players and gave teams the options of staying in the tunnel during the national anthem so that the image of athletes kneeling would not be prominent. That decision was widely criticized. The NFL has not been forceful in any kind of punishment for it. People criticized it because it included that you must respect the flag, which players felt like misrepresented their entire point. It's been a roller coaster. It's been incredibly frustrating. And it's still one of these unresolved issues that, you know, even as the NFL changes its tone, there has been no specific apology to Colin Kaepernick. There's been a court settlement. How, how do you see him factoring in into the future? Well, listen, uh... on Monday night during an ESPN interview, Roger Goodell 
was supportive of a team signing Colin Kaepernick finally? If he wants to resume his career uh, in the NFL, um, that obviously is going to take a team to make that decision. But I welcome that, uh, support a club making that decision and encourage them to do that. But there's been no specific apology and his standing in the league is still very much in question. And what exactly is going to change because of this? Like, is it suddenly just that players are allowed to kneel during the national anthem and that the NFL will occasionally tweet things about Black Lives Matter and call it a day? Or is there something more significant that will happen in the organization to really show that they are serious about this change in in where they land on this? NFL owners have pledged $250 million over the next 10 years, so $25 million a year to causes in their own communities that support Black Lives Matter, that are at least adjacent to it. So that's a fairly significant amount of money. However, when you break it down among 32 teams, $25 million is about $780,000 per team, which is roughly what it would cost for you to have what NFL teams would call a training camp dummy, someone that you just bring in to have him practice against your guys and you cut him before you cut the 50-man roster. So so it's really not that much. That, that, you know, in totality, yes, $250 million seems a lot, but when you, when you break it down and what it means to these mega billionaire owners, it's not that much money. So the NFL has a long way to go to prove that its fancy words and its fancy statements are going to result into action. That change in attitude from Goodell and from the NFL as an entity, do you think that that is, I don't know, do you think that that's authentic or do you think that this is just a business decision that they've basically seen that it is untenable to be on the wrong side of this from the standpoint of wanting to preserve their audience, preserve their sponsors? One of the the biggest parts of this movement is that so many big companies, major corporations are starting to understand that it is good business to be in the business of equality. And that's a shift. I think too often they were worried about the polarity of a protest, of kind of a rebellion. And now I think they're starting to see it differently. There's no doubt that if the rest of America, as we start to see in polls and in anecdotal evidence, if the rest of America hadn't come around There's no way in the world that the NFL comes around. And so they're always going to seesaw on what they think the majority thinks. So this is this is more of a response to their understanding of America and where they think the public opinion is greatest. So it's not I don't know if it's exactly insincere, but I think there is some some genuineness to their intentions, but it's also backed by the data that they are seeing. They live in a very practical, business-oriented world, and uh, finally, it's good business to be in the business of equality. So the fact that we have seen this pretty quick and dramatic evolution from, I think, what a lot of people would consider like the most culturally conservative major sport in America— does that make you feel hopeful, hopeful for, for sports and sports power to sort of change people's understanding of a moment, but also just like hopeful for the country? It makes me feel hopeful that 
the players on some level are being empowered here. I think they've got a long way to go as well in understanding how to use their power and demanding even more. And then understanding that this fight is going to go on so much longer than their careers, probably longer than their lives. Athletes are so used to results quickly. You know, in three hours, we have a result. We won the game or we lost it, and we go back and we correct. There's so many more intangibles involved. And to be able to keep up the fight is going to be difficult. And, and I think they can come back to the table and and demand a lot more. You have, for the first time, a commissioner is coming to you rather humbly, at least publicly, and saying that he wants to do better. You're going to have to guide him to do better. And you're going to have to be very organized and specific in the manner in which you do it. So at some point, I think the, you know, the emotion is going to die down. There aren't going to be marches every day, uh, but there's still going to be so much work to be done. And how you do that, and, and if the NFL truly wants to partner with you, it's, it's going to take a lot of actionable steps. And it can't just be we threw $780,000 per team for 10 years into this cause. There's so much more with the enormous worldwide global platform that the NFL has that can be done in its messaging and as a symbol to the rest of the world. Jerry Brewer is a sports columnist for The Post. Today, Senate Republicans announced their proposal to reform policing in America after George Floyd's killing. Well, good morning. Thank you for coming out this morning. Let me just say to Leader McConnell. It was something they had kind of scrambled to put together, but it was led by Senator Tim Scott, the Republican from South Carolina who has spent several years thinking about policing reform and criminal justice. He's also the Senate's only black Republican. This was not something on either side's radar, especially for an election year. But, you know, this is a visceral example of how much public opinion and, and protests can motivate lawmakers. Uh, Washington Post poll after the protests had been going for a couple of weeks showed that big majority of Americans think George Floyd's killing is part of a broader problem in policing. Big majorities in America support the protesters, and that includes a majority of Republicans. So lawmakers were compelled to act. To move this forward and have a real conversation with America about the importance of police reform, accountability, and transparency. And that's exactly what the Justice Act focuses on. I'm Amber Phillips. I analyze politics for the Fix blog at The Washington Post. So at this point, we have seen a bill that is being proposed by Democrats in the House. We've seen an executive order by the president. And now we're seeing a new bill from Senate Republicans on police reform. What are they saying that they think is the solution to this? Senate Republicans think that they should use federal grants to discourage potentially dangerous practices like chokeholds, 
some no-knock warrants, and then they want to incentivize departments to report to the federal government when police use deadly force or some of those no-knock warrants. They want more body cameras, and they they want to start a conversation uh, through a commission on societal conditions for Black men in America and criminal justice and what these Americans think should happen to policing. They also want to make lynching a federal crime. So it's a broad bill they introduced Tuesday. But the gist of it is that they want to use federal government money to steer police departments in a certain direction rather than write federal law to say how police departments should use or not use some of these more controversial practices. And how does this bill square with what President Trump is trying to do with his executive order on police reform? Well, President Trump's executive order would use similar uh, kind of sticks within the federal government to incentivize police departments to just do more training on on best practices. You know, he wants to set up a national database of misconduct, which Republicans aren't necessarily opposed to. We do not create a national database. The president's executive order creates basically a national database for that information to flow into. But I think the important thing to note about his executive order, which he came out with a day before Senate Republicans came out with their bill, is that it's something both sides have said is a start to the conversation, not the end. Well, that's one thing that's very interesting about this, because I think that if these proposals were to have come up from Republicans even six weeks ago, it would have been considered somewhat surprising. But at this point, the conversation has moved so quickly. And all of a sudden, we're talking about ideas of abolishing the police and defunding the police that you have to ask whether this will go anywhere near far enough to make anyone happy that that what they're proposing is actually going to result in tangible changes. Right. Well, you know, the other side of the political spectrum on this, Democrats in Congress, they certainly are not talking about abolishing or defunding police departments like some of the activists have been that are out on the streets. But Democrats want to seize this moment to try to just straight up ban some of these more controversial policing practices, chokeholds being the marquee one. Another big contention point is between Democrats and Republicans is they want to make it easier for people to sue police if they feel like their civil rights have been violated. Right now, it's really tough to almost impossible to do that. So then if you have this kind of hodgepodge of different proposals from different branches of Congress and from the White House, how are they going to come together on this? Or is there a chance that something like this will actually pass? Well, hopeful but skeptical is how I would describe everyone in Congress right now. There's a sense that both sides genuinely want to do something. And with public opinion being what it is after George Floyd's killing, they kind of feel like they have to do something. But they've also seen so many calls to action on other issues like immigration reform or gun control fizzle. And that's the well-worn pattern in Congress. That's what these lawmakers know. So bipartisanship, especially on something as controversial as policing reform, and especially in an election year, would be the exception to the rule. But today on Tuesday, I also heard Tim Scott, the Senate Republican from South Carolina, leading Republicans' efforts on policing reform, say, listen, one thing we can all agree on is let's get more data about how police use these controversial practices. That way that could empower decision makers down the line to decide whether they want to ban chokeholds, for example, or police should be allowed to be sued more easily. We have to have the right information so that we can direct our resources as a federal government to making sure that the outcomes lead to 
safer officers and safer suspects in the instances of challenges. So can Democrats kind of meet Republicans closer to that perspective, like take more what they would describe as a mini step toward reforming police rather than seizing this moment to just straight up ban chokeholds, for example? But I think there's a big question of whether taking a mini step would actually solve or change anything, right? Like, we have had conversations on a federal level before about how policing works and how policing could be better and what changes could or should be made in police departments around the country. And it would appear that those conversations and those more moderate steps at police reform haven't made the changes that people want to see. Right. The last thing lawmakers want to do on both sides of the aisle is find a compromise, act, go home, and then see the same level of protests at home in their cities and in their communities. Where do you go from there to try to quell this this national unrest about racial injustice? So they're balancing a tricky line here. How do they show that they are like genuinely hearing Americans right now, that they're acting, um, especially in election year, but also, especially for Republicans, not take it too far, right? There's still like half of their base, according to polling, that doesn't think George Floyd's killing is is part of a broader problem, that it this might be like part of a more isolated incident, which is closer to where the majority of America was, you know, six years ago when, when things erupted in Ferguson, Missouri, for example. And it feels like that is one of the big questions that is the shadow over this debate. What is at stake here for members of Congress? Democrats want to try in a purely crass political sense to capitalize on these protests, which are full of young people, people of color. Um, they love to get all those people excited to go out and vote for Joe Biden and Democrats in the House and Senate in, in just a couple months. Senate Republicans have a bit of a trickier line to walk. They certainly weren't planning on doing this until Floyd's killing spurred these national protests. And, and those protests encompass some of their base polling shows. But how do they act in a way that doesn't, you know, take things too far? And they have to be careful not to tangle with with the president on this. He has tried to position himself as the person in Washington who's focused on protecting the police. You know, as he signed his executive order to try to encourage more training for police, he made sure to say Americans want law and order. They demand law and order. They may not say it. They may not be talking about it, but that's what they want. He tweets about this almost daily. He had law enforcement officials and, and police unions surrounding him, even though you know he was sure to note that he had met with families of people who had been killed by the police earlier in the day at the White House. So Senate Republicans, I feel like they have a lot more factions they need to work with, even as they all generally agree in Congress they need to do something. So what do we know about the timing of this? Like, how quickly are lawmakers trying to actually pass something on police reform? Uh, really quickly, by the standards of Congress, House Democrats are advancing their bill. They could vote on it by next week. It's expected to pass mostly, if not entirely, on Democratic support. Senate Republicans could vote on their bill or try to hold a vote in the coming weeks. There was some thought that they might wait until after the July 4th break when they all go home. But that Senate vote, whenever it happens, perhaps in the next couple of weeks, is, is going to be complicated, more so than the House, where a party line vote um, could 
pass the legislation. In the Senate, Republicans need a handful of Democrats to join them in moving this bill forward. We will see if they can get a handful of perhaps more moderate Democrats on board with this. Uh, If not, this could get stuck in that familiar partisan finger-pointing game where Democrats say, listen, we're not helping you advance your bill because we think it misses the mark, and Republicans accuse Democrats of trying to stop policing reform to make a political point. This is about making a law, not just making a point. Uh, This is not messaging. Uh, This is trying to be able to work in the most bipartisan way we can work. Get it on the floor. Let's have amendments. Let's talk through the process. Uh, Equal justice under the law shouldn't be a partisan issue. And from there, I mean, we've all seen that play out. Nothing gets done, basically, is the end result. Amber Phillips writes about politics for The Fix. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. It's a challenging time for small businesses in communities across the country. Facebook's Business Resource Hub offers free tools to help you manage your business, support your customers and employees, and connect with other business owners who are facing similar challenges. From information on how to bring your business online to setting up a customer service plan, Facebook's Business Resource Hub has you covered. Learn more at facebook.com slash resource. That's facebook.com slash resource. Now, one more thing. I'm Sarah Kaplan. I'm a climate reporter at The Washington Post. The Empire State Building was built during a really horrible time for New York. It was the middle of the Great Depression. The stock market had just crashed. There were shanty towns in Central Park and bread lines in the streets. And in the middle of that, in the middle of all of this hardship, this massive skyscraper, the tallest thing that had ever been built, just kept rising up. 102 stories high. Its gigantic tower dominates the city and can be seen from nearly everywhere. It was this beacon. The tower and the sun are an awe-inspiring sight. New York is in the middle of a crisis again. The coronavirus pandemic has killed thousands of New Yorkers. It's shut down the city. And that's not the only crisis that the city is facing. Climate change has also been incredibly destructive in New York. Now, Mayor de Blasio is warning everybody to take the heat wave seriously. Widespread flooding is the biggest concern in the nation's largest city as Hurricane Sandy approaches. Buildings are a huge source of carbon emissions. Places like New York, about two-thirds of their carbon emissions come from buildings. But New York is trying to change that. Last year, it passed this huge landmark building law that is going to require most of the large buildings in the city to do exactly what the Empire State Building did and cut their emissions 40 percent by 2030. That sounds like a really monumental task, but the Empire State Building says that it can be done, and they did it, and they actually did it while saving money. So you start with the envelope of the building, the outside that's often poorly insulated. One of the things the Empire State Building did was refurbish all of their windows and actually pump the spaces between them full of gas that prevent the transfer of heat. They also installed these reflective barriers behind the radiators that 
reflect the heat back into the building instead of allowing it to escape through the walls. And they have automated blinds that actually lower and raise in synchrony with the sun, installing LED lights, which are much more efficient and can be automated actually to turn off when people leave the room. Another thing that some tenants do is install automated systems that actually turn off plugs at night and on weekends. And that prevents devices like computers from sucking power through a plug even when they're not in use. Even the elevators have a technology called regenerative braking. So that means that as the elevators slow to a stop, they actually produce energy that can be fed back into the building and used to help other elevators rise up. And then finally, once you have the energy demand so reduced, you can replace the equipment that provides the building with heat and power with things that are smaller and more efficient and will be less carbon intensive. This can't just stop with New York City. Even if every building in the city goes efficient, sea levels are still gonna rise and New York will still experience flooding. They really need these kinds of retrofits to be implemented around the world. And it is starting to happen. DC has a sustainability law, Washington State has one, other cities are starting to implement their own. One thing that comes up over and over again when you talk to folks at the Empire State Building or at the city about these retrofit measures is that, you know, if you can do it in New York, you can do it anywhere. And their goal is to prove that it can be done. And owners say that it really goes back to the Empire State Building's beginnings, that in a really terrible time, the building can be a beacon, that it can convey confidence in the future. Except this time, it's with elevators that regenerate energy and LED lights, that it can tell the city that better days are still to come. And so it moves from the memories of yesterday into the promise of tomorrow. New York, the wonder city. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We got great feedback from our story last week about police in Hollywood. On Twitter, a listener named Mark said that he found it tremendously insightful, and he even included a nice gif. If you're on Twitter, share thoughts or even gifs about what you hear on our podcast. DM me or tweet with the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Facebook. We know it's a challenging time for small businesses across the country. Facebook's Business Resource Hub offers free tools to help manage your business, support your customers and employees, and connect with other business owners who are... Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.